Chapter 10. Entre nous. Hayes was back in Las Vegas, this time with Ty. It was December 31st, 2008. The couple had flown in from Los Angeles, where they'd spent a few days touristing around Beverly Hills and Hollywood after Christmas. One of the first things Hayes did was track down Rod Stewart's bronze star on Hollywood Boulevard's Walk of Fame. They had stayed at the Beverly Wilshire, one of Los Angeles' finest hotels. One day, Hayes wanted to check out Venice Beach, the bohemian boardwalk neighborhood crowded with bodybuilders and peddlers of drug paraphernalia. He asked the hotel concierge where to catch a bus to get there. The stiffly dressed concierge looked at him like he was crazy. Perhaps he'd be more comfortable taking advantage of the complimentary car service that the hotel offered for its customers' pleasure. So Hayes and Ty were chauffeured to the dingy beach in a silver Rolls Royce. In Vegas, they stayed at the Four Seasons. They had New Year's Eve plans to meet some friends for dinner and drinks at a swanky club overlooking the strip. But that afternoon, Hayes began behaving weirdly, even for him. He was rude to the hotel staff. He shouted at Ty. Miffed, she went out for drinks without him. They reconnected at the club, packed with revelers in sequined dresses and party hats. Hayes was still agitated, alternating between sulking to himself, snapping at waiters, and being gruff with their friends. Ty was familiar with this mood. She had dubbed it his grumpy zombie state. She and one of her friends went off on their own for a while so that she could vent about Hayes. When she returned, she gave him an ultimatum. If you don't start behaving, you'll be spending New Year's Eve alone. Hayes pulled himself together, but Ty could tell he remained anxious. As midnight approached, Hayes, sweaty and shifting from foot to foot, shoved a glass of champagne into Ty's hand. He took her by the arm and half dragged her to a large window with a panoramic view of the strip. Fireworks exploded and suddenly the night sky was just as colorful as the boulevard below, illuminated with blinking lights from casinos and electronic billboards. Hayes pulled an engagement ring out of his pocket and thrust it into Ty's palm. It was platinum with a massive round-cut diamond. There was no speech, no taking a knee. Will you marry me? he asked. Ty cried and said yes. Relieved, Hayes apologized for his bad behavior all evening. I was so nervous, he explained. She embraced him. The year was only a few minutes old, but already 2009 was off to a promising start. The end of 2008 hadn't been bad either. Hayes had stitched together an impressive string of winning trades. Some of them, Hayes estimated they accounted for perhaps $2 million to $5 million of his profits that year, stemmed from the LIBOR-moving efforts he deployed with his colleagues, rivals, and brokers. Hayes wasn't the only one playing with the rate, but the relentless pressure he applied and the leverage he enjoyed with the brokers and fellow traders as a giant market maker made him a standout. As always, Hayes didn't spend much time thinking about whether what he was doing was right or wrong. Those weren't values he assigned to his job. His sole criterion was whether what he was doing was making money. And he was doing that in spades. His final tally for the year, about $89 million in profits for UBS, a home run even in calm markets. If normal investment banking pay standards applied, Hayes was headed for a multi-million dollar bonus early in 2009, especially when coupled with the prior year's promotion and promised payout of $2.5 million. While Hayes was soaring, Reed was finally stepping aside. Adios, mate, he emailed Goodman on December 10th. Thanks for giving me a job and a start on the road to a life of no sleep and too much alcohol. He apologized for constantly interrupting Goodman's early morning train rides with LIBOR requests. As a postscript, he told Goodman where Hayes wanted LIBOR to move over the next few weeks. Nudge, nudge. Hayes bought Reed a walking stick as a sarcastic retirement gift. Reed thanked him, saying it would come in handy as he strolled the beaches of the Bay of Plenty.
The broker expressed his affection for the trader he'd spent every day over the past several years talking to. Hayes replied with uncharacteristic warmth. Words cannot adequately express how much I have enjoyed working with you over the years. You have seen me grow from a trainee to a grumpy old git. But as the market evolved, I feel we have both learnt together, and that always gave us a real edge in the market as we thought along the same lines, he wrote. This year has been the pinnacle of my career, and you played a huge part in it. In short, you are irreplaceable, and I am gutted that you are going. Reed was not quite done, though. Despite having retired days earlier, he texted Goodman on December 29th to ask about the direction of interest rates. Goodman responded a few minutes later, Request from my lord. Get a life. Understood, Reed texted. Over and out. Hayes's banner year was well known in Tokyo, and it didn't take long in 2009 for the job offers to start arriving. Deutsche Bank and Morgan Stanley put out feelers in February, then Barclays joined the fray. Even Goldman, which Hayes had spurned the prior year, was back to wooing him. Hayes didn't rebuff the offers. UBS, like many other large, risk loving investment banks, was suffering gargantuan losses that had necessitated a $54 billion government bailout. In late February, after the bank lost another $9 billion, its CEO, Marcel Rohner, was removed. His replacement was a 40 year banking veteran named Oswald Grubel, who previously had run crosstown rival Credit Suisse. One of his first moves was to dock just about everyone's pay. Large bonuses were off the table. Pieri summoned Hayes into his office and delivered the bad news. Rather than the award of at least $2.5 million that he'd been expecting, UBS would only be paying him $250,000. UBS shafted me, he told a friend. So as he had the prior year, Hayes told Pieri, who in turn told his bosses about the suitors. A few days later, Karsten Kengieter, the co-head of UBS's large investment banking division, a tall, well-built German with a passion for extreme skiing and yoga, called Hayes and tried to extinguish his interest in the other banks. He promised that UBS would look out for Hayes and that he would check the feasibility of making another ironclad bonus guarantee. Hayes and Pieri asked Kengieter to speak to Ty, who was pushing hard for Hayes to test the waters with other banks. I think getting his fiancée around is key, Pieri said. Ken Geeter never called her. Ty remained convinced that Hayes should be entertaining the rival offers. The wooing lasted all spring. Hayes wasn't especially keen on working for any of these other banks, but he knew it was in his interest to keep flirting. Pieri and Ken Geeter engaged in a full-court press to prevent him from defecting with Ken Geeter placing regular reassuring phone calls. It was unusual for an executive of Ken Geeter's seniority, only a rung or two below the CEO of the entire company, to be so involved in retaining a mid-level trader, but it reflected Hayes' importance to UBS. And that importance only seemed to be growing. Hayes was off to a smoking start in 2009. Day after day, week after week, Farr and his colleagues planted Hayes's LIBOR-moving requests with a small cluster of interest-rate traders around London. It wasn't hard. All Farr had to do was drop it into conversations he was supposed to be having anyway. In fact, it was a good way to force himself to be in regular communication with traders at big banks. The bigger challenge for Farr, who happened to be in physical therapy after the latest in a series of recent motorcycle crashes, and his colleagues, was figuring out how to execute the sham switch trades that Hayes continued to deliver as thanks. Finding Hayes a trading partner was key, and that task was getting harder. Multiple traders rebuffed the R.P. Martin brokers, including J.P. Morgan's Stuart Wiley, who now told Farr that we can't do switches anymore. So it fell to Danziger, who was increasingly disgusted with the situation at RBS. The bank, recently nationalized by the British government, wasn't paying anyone bonuses. 
I don't give a fuck around here at the moment, so whenever you want to do it, I'll always do it, he told Aaron. Danziger figured the switch trades were a good way to make up for some of the lost largesse. This way, at least the brokers would lavish him with meals, booze, and weekend getaways. Hayes left the details of these trades to a London colleague named Simon Otty, who had a specific way he wanted the transactions structured. It was no secret that they were happening, but, all the same, it was in everyone's best interest not to be too blatant about them. After all, even though UBS was getting what it paid for in the form of help with LIBOR, the only purpose of the trades was to pay fees to R.P. Martin. The trick, Audi told Farr, was to make sure the two trades were separated by at least a half hour or so. I thought it would raise less questions than if I did them at the same time, Audi explained. It's just a case so it doesn't flag up anything. I understand fully, mate, Farr confirmed. A couple of weeks later, on Valentine's Day, the broker crashed his motorcycle yet again. This time, his beloved Ducati got mangled. Farr was shaken up and bruised. You should stop riding those death traps, Hayes suggested. It was the rare request from Hayes that Farr wasn't inclined to honor. In February 2009, Alexis Stenfors set out on a vacation with his wife, Maria, daughters, and in-laws to India, his first break from work in nearly 18 months. He was coming off an awesome year, having raked in about $120 million in profits for Merrill Lynch, largely a reflection of placing bets that anticipated the financial crisis. But Stenforce knew his career as a trader was nearing an end. Part of it was the relentless stress of day after day of high-stakes trading, he had developed a painful infection in his chest that his doctors attributed to stress. His right forearm and wrist, severely strained from his constant use of a keyboard and phone, had to be wrapped in an elaborate brace. Stenforce spent most of his waking hours in pain, and his year was off to a bad start. The financial industry was rebounding from the depths of the crisis, and Stenforce's bearish bets were no longer looking so wise. But there was something else, and it was far from a minor concern. On the more than eight-hour flight to India, Stenforce was finally honest with himself. He had been engaged in an elaborate scam at Merrill Lynch. Every day, he had to attach values to his massive portfolio of investments, and lately he'd been assigning bogus numbers that made it look like he was enjoying considerably more success than he really was. At first, He'd regarded this as a temporary fix. It only had to keep his managers off his back until his fortunes improved. But his fortunes hadn't improved. His losses only deepened. By the time he boarded the plane, his little fib had grown into a nine-figure monstrosity. The anxiety was gnawing at him. Still, he did nothing. On his second morning in India, though, Stenforce called a colleague back in London to check on his portfolio. The response was alarming. Merrill Lynch officials were digging through his books, apparently alerted to anomalies. Stenforce spent a day weighing his options. He decided that he had no choice. He told Maria that he'd been mismarking his books. She didn't know what that meant, so he explained that it was the equivalent of hiding a big loss in a drawer. Then he phoned his boss, who was skiing in Switzerland. I have something I need to tell you, Stenforce began. Then he admitted everything. Stenforce had hoped that the act of confessing would feel like a weight lifting off his shoulders. It didn't. He just felt guilty. After a few days of further reflection and an eerie silence from the folks in London, Stenforce thought maybe he should get a lawyer. He got in touch with one through a mutual acquaintance. The lawyer instructed him to immediately return to London. It was starting to dawn on Stenforce that this might be more serious than he'd initially assumed. So he said goodbye to his family, which was about to visit the Taj Mahal, and flew to London. After a couple days of legal meetings, there didn't seem to be anything more to do. He figured he might as well rejoin his family, so he went back to India. Meanwhile, 
as Merrill Lynch managers scrambled to assess the damage. It was considerable. He was sitting on more than $400 million in losses. Notified by Merrill, the FSA opened an investigation. Shortly after Stenforce and his family returned from their vacation, Merrill suspended him. He'd be fired a few months later. Merrill publicly described the problem as an irregularity. The muffled description didn't stop Stenforce becoming an instant pariah. A Finnish newspaper attacked its native son for helping cause the global financial crisis, a considerable exaggeration. Photographers gathered outside the family's home. His landlord refused to refund the security deposit on his apartment, arguing that his wife had suffered severe emotional distress due to their tenant's newfound notoriety. The landlord eventually agreed to refund half the deposit. Farr broke the news to Hayes. Got any jobs going? Because I'll need one. Fucking Alexis has been sacked, he said. The guy is a lovely bloke and doesn't deserve the SH blank blank he is getting, Farr continued, for once censoring his language. I don't believe for a minute that he is doing anything illegal. He is a scapegoat, Hayes agreed. Then he and Farr got back to plotting how to push LIBOR higher. Hayes received a steady stream of visitors that spring. One was the Citigroup researcher Scott Pang, who had heard of a prolific, brilliant trader in Tokyo and wanted to meet him. The two sat down at a sushi restaurant, obviously not Hayes's choice, and chatted about the markets. The subject of LIBOR manipulation didn't come up. Amid a mid-March heat wave in Tokyo, Far arrived. Hayes volunteered Alikulov to serve as his tour guide, taking him on a boat ride into Tokyo's biggest video game arcade. Got yourself a good one there, mate, Far told Hayes after meeting Ty for the first time. A top bird. Ty thought Far seemed like a genuine guy. It would be hard to fake his sloppy attire and casual demeanor, but in general, her fiancé's brokers struck her as an insincere, cloying bunch. Once, when she went out to one of Tokyo's many expat bars, a bunch of brokers lined up to talk to her, literally standing in a queue, patiently awaiting the chance to buy her a drink and pay their respects. She felt like the wife of a mafia don. That was awkward, but it was nothing compared to the embarrassment that Hayes sometimes caused. Once, Ty's boss, a partner at Herbert Smith, hosted a barbecue for his team at his Tokyo apartment. Ty and Hayes showed up toting two bottles of expensive wine as a gift. Hayes looked forward to drinking them, but when he handed the bottles to the host, they were placed on his already ample wine rack. He and Ty were directed to a small bar area where some other wine bottles were already uncorked. Hayes, who was learning all he could about wine in preparation for his wedding, could tell that the open bottles were considerably cheaper than the two he had brought. Within earshot of the host, he declared that he thought it was inappropriate to accept expensive bottles of wine and then to serve a cheap alternative. Mortified, Ty told her fiancé to shut his mouth. Later, Hayes wandered outside to the patio, impressed by this rare luxury in a Tokyo apartment. Ty's boss, now manning the grill, mentioned that he was really enjoying the barbecue. Hayes responded that he could understand that sentiment. The low cost of the wine and food that he was serving, compared to the benefits that the party would have in terms of motivating his team, meant the event was a good investment. Ty, standing nearby, groaned. A few weeks after Farr left, Ty's sister Emma arrived for an eight-day visit. Emma, who taught chemistry and biology to high school students, thought Hayes was awfully odd. She noticed that he sometimes went up to objects and sniffed them like an animal. One evening, the sisters stopped by a small bar called Magumbo's, a popular spot for the city's rowdy western brokers and traders, featuring a bell that customers could ring when they bought cheap shots of liquor for the other customers. It was around 10 p.m. on a weeknight, so Hayes had long since retired. A man seated next to Emma and Sarah seemed to be listening in on their conversation, conspicuous partly because he was drunk 
and partly because half his face appeared slack, like he had some sort of muscular problem. It was Roger Darren. He and Ty had never met, but he somehow had discerned that this was his nemesis's fiancée. Interrupting, Darren told Ty that he hated Hayes, and, checking out Emma, he added, It looks like he's gone for the wrong sister. Reed had spent the past few months living in a small house across the street from the beach in Tauranga. Notwithstanding a problematic neighbor, the setup seemed idyllic. But his boys didn't like it there, and Joanna felt even more isolated than she already had. Reed eventually caved, and as long as he was moving back to Wellington, he figured he might as well work. He'd been missing the buzz of the markets, and opportunity beckoned. Executives at a variety of brokerages were begging Reed to return to the industry. ICAP, in particular, thought it was sacrificing huge amounts of potential revenue by not having a broker in place with a good relationship with Hayes. In late March, Reed had exploratory conversations with ICAP, Tullet Prebon, and BGC. He only had one client, but it was a client that everyone was itching to land. Eventually, Lured by a doubled pay package, Reed decided to come back to the ICAP family. If Reed's unretirement wasn't enough to lift Hayes' spirits, the trader's performance in the first four months of 2009 should have done the trick. By May, he was up $105 million, and only a small fraction, perhaps 5%, was due to his LIBOR massaging efforts. This was the kind of torrid showing that could have a real impact on UBS's overall financial results. Hayes endured bad days, even a couple of bad weeks, but the good times far outnumbered the bad ones. Sitting all day in front of his towering bank of computer screens, his back and eyes and arms aching, Hayes had become perhaps the biggest player in the Tokyo market. He had honed his computer models so well that on the vast majority of transactions he executed, he notched a small profit. And with the tens of thousands of trades he was doing, those small profits quickly piled up. Guillaume Adolphe grew up in the Bordeaux region of France. He was short, chubby, and pale-skinned, and frequently ducked out of the office for cigarette breaks. He had been a successful trader in London for Italy's Unicredit Bank but that was the minor leagues of investment banking. In 2006, Merrill Lynch poached him. For a couple of years, Adolf worked near Stenforce in Merrill's London offices. The two didn't get along well. Adolf was prickly and ill-tempered. His already thick French accent seemed to grow thicker on the frequent occasions when he was angry or agitated. Shortly before his wedding in April 2008, after losing tens of millions of dollars in a matter of a week or two, Adolf was fired. In a vivid illustration of how Wall Street traders rolled the dice with other people's money, rarely facing personal consequences when their gambles went awry, Adolf was hired as a trader in Deutsche Bank's huge London office barely two months later. In addition to trading Japanese interest rate derivatives, he was promptly put in charge of the bank's yen LIBOR submissions. His boss was David Nichols, the manager who had insisted to John Ewan that LIBOR was impossible to manipulate. A couple of years earlier, at the ICAP Christmas dinner, Stenforce had pointed Adolf out to Hayes from across the crowded room, but the two had never met. Still, a relationship developed. It started off casually, with Hayes and Adolf chatting electronically via their computer terminals. Hayes struggled to pronounce or spell the Frenchman's name, so he decided to call him Gollum, a nod to the famous Tolkien character. At the time, Adolf was a big interest-rate derivatives trader, not as big as Hayes, but big enough that it was inevitable that the two regularly were on the opposing sides of trades. That meant it could be mutually beneficial to know each other, if for no other reason than to make sure the brokers who served as middlemen weren't pulling the wool over either of their eyes. And, of course, Gollum was responsible for Deutsche Bank's yen LIBOR submissions. He often told Hayes that he was setting LIBOR based in part on where he needed the benchmark to move 
to benefit his trades, the kind of power Hayes, who had to rely on Darren, could only dream of. By August 2008, Hayes and Adolf were doing enough business together that Hayes thought it was time to take the relationship to the next level. Look, I appreciate the business and the calls, he said. We should try to share info where possible. Also, let me know if you need fixes one way or the other. Sure, Adolf said. The partnership, an alliance, Hayes called it, meant that the two traders would cooperate when possible on the levels and directions of their bank's LIBOR submissions. Striking such a deal with a competitor was uncharacteristic of Hayes. Of course, he lodged plenty of requests for favors from rivals, but those weren't part of long-term agreements. Indeed, he tended to view his rivals as enemies, worthy of clobbering with golf clubs. And Hayes knew that teaming up with a rival trader to share information and nudge LIBOR in helpful directions bordered on collusion. But when he mentioned the arrangement to Pieri, his boss seemed unbothered. The relationship soon proved lucrative. At 10 a.m. on May 13, 2009, in London, Adolf sent Hayes a heads-up message that his Deutsche Bank colleague planned to lower the bank's U.S. dollar LIBOR submission by 20 basis points in about an hour. That was a massive move. Usually a shift of a single basis point would be considered significant, and it promised to knock the overall LIBOR average lower. Entre nous, the Frenchman whispered. Hayes rushed to Pierre's office, interrupted a meeting, and told his boss what he'd just learned. Pierre asked what he thought they should do. Hayes suggested loading up on a derivative that would gain value if U.S. dollar LIBOR plunged. Pierre agreed, and Hayes executed the trade. When the BBA published the daily LIBOR figures 90 minutes later, the average had indeed dipped. Hayes's trade scored an instant $1.25 million profit for UBS. Pierre congratulated him on his latest coup, never mind its questionable provenance. So big was Deutsche Bank's move that it caught the attention of the normally somnambulant BBA. Ewan asked Thomson Reuters, which collected the data on the BBA's behalf, to phone Deutsche Bank to make sure the data hadn't been entered incorrectly. Maybe the bank meant to reduce its submission by two basis points, not 20. Nope. That's what we want to put in, Deutsche Bank's submitter confirmed. Then Ewan's phone started ringing with complaints from other banks. The huge cut had left Deutsche Bank's LIBOR data lower than those of its peers. The matter was discussed at the next meeting of the LIBOR oversight panel. The FXMMC instructed Ewan to pay Deutsche Bank a visit, so he did, marching over to its tan brick building. In a meeting room decorated with what looked like expensive modern artwork, a Deutsche Bank employee insisted that the submission reflected the bank's true borrowing costs. Ewan reported back to the FXMMC, which decided that nothing improper had occurred. That was the end of the matter. It would prove to be the only time the Oversight Committee ever investigated a bank's LIBOR submission. Chapter 11. Gods of the Sea by the summer of 2009, the financial system had bounced back from its near-death experience. The recovery created a puzzling situation. Many of the world's leading banks were now partly owned by taxpayers, owing to massive government bailouts. The economies of much of the Western world remained mired in deep recessions, thanks in no small part to their banks' misadventures. Corporate chieftains were paying lip service, if nothing else, to the idea of humility and remorse, and indeed some banks had become more conservative. In June 2009, for example, Royal Bank of Scotland emptied out big parts of its investment bank. Among the casualties was Hayes' mentor, Brent Davies, who was let go after a two-decade career there. The large, charismatic Davies, who years earlier had warned Hayes to never trust a broker, quickly landed a job as a broker at ICAP, 
where his responsibilities included winning business from his former colleagues and rivals. At the same time, though, markets were surging, powered by the release of pent-up demand among companies and rich individuals. That was translating into fat profits for Wall Street banks and their traders. So, despite all the rhetoric about the financial crisis meaning the end of Wall Street, Wall Street was on a tear, and many traders had regained their swagger. Deepening the paradox, it was actually in the best interests of the bank's new government owners for their wards to return to profitability, since that would enable the governments to sell their stakes in the banks at a profit, helping quiet public fury over the unpopular bailouts. And the best way to get the banks back to their normal profitable ways, at least according to the bankers themselves, was to unleash the creative, aggressive, risk-taking genius of their traders and investment bankers. Hayes had just returned from a week-long vacation in Thailand. He'd been there once before, with Ainsworth. This time he took Thai to a different tropical island, Koh Samui. They stayed at the Four Seasons, which had become the only hotel chain that the obsession-prone Hayes was willing to spend money on. Once again, Hayes had refused to wear sunscreen, and this time his burns were so severe that he became ill. The rest of the vacation was spent with Ty nursing him back to health while he fretted about turbulence in the markets. Back in Tokyo, he called Far. The broker had previously volunteered to pay for a chunk of the vacation. Hayes felt a bit guilty about it, but not so guilty that he didn't accept the offer. I'll just give you my bill for my hotel room, if that's all right, he said. The thing is, mate, it's in Thai bot. No problem, Farr assured him. R.P. Martin would just convert the figure into pounds and deposit the money into Hayes's personal bank account. I appreciate that, Hayes said sheepishly. The thing is, it's about 5,000 bucks, mate. Farr was unruffled. He had already checked with his boss, Cliff King, about covering part of Hayes's trip. The money was transferred. Hayes, of course, didn't need help with the hotel bill, but he nonetheless was grateful for the friendly gesture. He suggested to Farr that he reciprocate via a big switch trade, yielding far more in commissions than R.P. Martin had paid to cover the hotel. It was mission accomplished for Farr. In late June, Hayes asked Wiley to get his J.P. Morgan colleagues to bump six-month LIBOR higher. It would probably suit me as well, but our guys seem to be very by the book, Wiley said. If I ask them, they'd almost move it in the opposite direction out of spite. Still, Wiley got on the phone with his LIBOR-submitting colleague, who, sure enough, refused to help. Wiley told Hayes. They sound like pricks, Hayes declared in an instant message from his Bloomberg terminal. Hayes's obnoxiousness was nothing new but the prick's remark nonetheless irritated Wiley, and so he called Wilkinson, with whom Wiley had previously plotted to move LIBOR in helpful directions. Now Wiley relayed a badly distorted version of what had just happened. Tommy Hayes wanted LIBOR moved, Wiley said, which I had no intention of doing. But of course I don't want to piss him off, so I sort of went for a bit of pretense. He said he had told Hayes he would check with his guys, but never actually did anything. Oh, mate, that's so illegal, it's ridiculous, Wilkinson sympathized, laughing. Continued Wiley, so I came back with a Bloomberg saying I spoke to my guys, and he sends an email back saying, your guys are pricks. Fucking hell, Wilkinson responded. He's out of control, isn't he? Now you know what we're dealing with. He's got to be careful phoning up banks, Wiley said. You just don't do that. He'll get in all sorts of trouble. Now it was Wilkinson's turn to bend the truth. Well, he sort of tries it around here, he said. But we said, mate, look, if you've got any views on LIBOR, we'll listen to them, but that's as far as it goes. Wilkinson, laughing louder now, mimicked Hayes' requests to ICAP. Aye, aye, shepherd's pie, he giggled recycling the old yarn about the out-of-control haze. Get in the bath. I don't want to piss him off by saying that I'm not going to do anything at all, but I'm just pretending to. Wiley lied again.
Mate, absolutely, yeah. I think you've made the right call, Wilkinson agreed. Just fucking leave it be. Put the onus on someone else. Noel Cryan was in South Africa, having followed Britain's national rugby team, the Lions, there for a tournament. The trip wasn't going quite as planned. For starters, his traveling companion's hotel room was robbed, and Hayes was driving Cryan crazy. This was nothing new. Cryan was accustomed to Hayes' antics. Most of the time, he managed to turn the other cheek. There were exceptions. After one tirade, Cryan had threatened to come to Tokyo and kill Hayes. The broker smashed the phone down, kicked his chair onto its side, and stomped out of the building. In this case, Cryan had warned Hayes he was going on vacation beforehand, but the message didn't seem to have registered. Hayes called Tullet looking for the broker. When told that Cryan was in South Africa, Hayes exploded, He's a fucking lazy crit. He's never in work, that boy. He's had more holidays this year than I've had in the last three years. Hayes called Cryan on his cell phone, too, warning that he might sever his relationship with Tullet. The rant lasted almost ten minutes. Mate, I'm in fucking South Africa. Cryan responded. What the fuck do you want me to do? Once Cryan was back in London, Hayes teased him about the hotel room getting burgled. Cryan, trying to make conversation, said that things had been quiet lately, depriving him of brokerage revenue. He wasn't asking for charity, but just like that, Hayes volunteered a switch trade to help him out. After assailing Cryan a few days earlier, now Hayes acted as though they were friends. Cryan happily accepted the offer, and Hayes, true to his word, arranged a lucrative switch trade. Danziger, who recently had run up such a huge tab on a night out with Cryan that Tullet's normally laissez-faire bean counters had taken notice, took the other side of the transaction as a way to say thanks. These quid pro quos had become an established pattern for Danziger. In June, after an afternoon and evening of drinking, Danziger and Lee Aaron decided to go to a club, Mahiki, along with several other brokers and traders. The tropical-themed night spot, frequented by celebrities and located amid the hedge funds and Ferrari showrooms of London's Mayfair neighborhood, had a pair of wooden Pacific Island statuettes guarding its main entrance, along with a few black-shirted bouncers. Aaron was outrageously drunk when he arrived, and Danziger was fucking out of his head. Aaron reported the next day. The bouncers wouldn't let the inebriated group in unless they forked over a fee to access a VIP area. They paid. Inside, Danziger and Aaron started guzzling 250-pound bottles of vodka. By the end of the night, they had run up a 2,200-pound tab. Aaron knew that was too much to charge on R.P. Martin's account, at least without prior approval so he pleaded to Danziger for help. But the RBS trader didn't want to split the bill. He had a better idea. Just put a switch through, he drunkenly proposed. Aaron agreed. The next day at 6.30 a.m., after a few hours of sleep, Aaron was at work. He was still a bit drunk, his voice hoarse. He phoned RBS. Danziger owes me a little switchy today, he told the guy who answered the phone. Is he in? Don't actually see him, was the response. There's number one rule. If you go drinking, make sure you get in, Aaron slurred. That is the only rule. It doesn't matter if you go out drinking till four o'clock in the morning. Make it home, make it into work, and then people will send you home if you look like shit. But at least make the effort to make it in. That's the only rule. Yeah, I know, the RBS guy said. Eventually, Danziger showed up, and a hundred billion yen switch trade got done. It netted R.P. Martin nearly 20,000 pounds, about $33,000 in commissions, almost ten times the size of the Mahiki bill. Footnote. When Aaron submitted the Mahiki receipt for reimbursement, he made up a client. He didn't want Danziger's name involved. End footnote. The combination of a fierce hangover and the 20,000-pound windfall had Aaron in a loopy mood, and he spent most of the rest of the day telling jokes. 
Did I tell you that fucking one-liner? He asked a colleague. She's about as useful as Anne Frank's drum kit. That fucking line is great. Aaron's colleague didn't get it, possibly because it was out of context. Aaron wasn't using it to refer to anyone in particular. Well, she had to be quiet, didn't she? He explained. So a fucking drum kit is fucking useless. She was hiding in the wall, wasn't she? A few days later, Danziger pinged Aaron with a non-alcoholic request. Low libors again, please. Gotcha, Aaron replied. One day in June, Hayes got an email from Neil Archer, an imposing bald Australian who worked as a recruiter for a number of big banks. He was reaching out on behalf of Citigroup. The New York bank had just hired a refugee from Lehman Brothers, a star trader named Chris Checkeray. Citigroup sent him to Tokyo to build up the bank's interest rates trading business. Checkeray had consulted with Archer, and the pair drew up a short list of Tokyo's best rates traders. Hayes was at the top. Archer asked Hayes if he'd be interested in a meeting. Sure, he said. Hayes and Checkeray met at the Maduro Bar and the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Roppongi. It was afternoon, and the dark, wood-paneled jazz bar, which featured live music in the evenings, was mostly empty. Hayes ordered a very expensive glass of orange juice. Checkeray drank a beer. Unlike when he was fated by Goldman, Hayes felt comfortable around Checkeray. They both dressed haphazardly, showing up at the swank bar in jeans and sneakers. The curly-haired Checkeray sported a bushy, unkempt beard, making his thin face look fuller than it really was. Five years older than Hayes, Checkeray was brainy without being saddled with social awkwardness. He spoke in rapid-fire bursts and exuded nervous energy. They each could tell that the other was a savvy trader, and Hayes later reported to Ty that Checkeray was probably the smartest guy I've ever met. The day after their hotel meeting, Hayes sent a follow-up note to thank Checkeray for his time and to signal that he was open to further discussions. At the next meeting, the CEO of Citigroup's Japanese investment banking business, Brian McCappin, came along. So did Ty. They met in the top-floor bar of another hotel with sweeping views of Tokyo's skyline. McCappin, an easygoing, karaoke-loving Brit, quickly determined that Ty was the key decision-maker and that she liked to drink. Downing glass after glass of expensive wine on Citigroup's tab, Ty did most of the talking at the meeting. Hayes didn't say much, and then after a while abruptly ended the meeting, declaring that he had made other plans. Hayes and Ty were both enthusiastic about him joining Citigroup, especially after Checkeray introduced his wife, Megan, a pretty American with brown hair and hazel eyes. The two couples got along well. Hayes and Ty liked the idea of him working for a U.S. bank. That would make it easier for them to one day move to New York. Plus, Hayes had come to distrust UBS after it failed to live up to its compensation promises. It didn't hurt that Citigroup was offering a $3 million cash signing bonus on top of a generous salary and the expectation of an additional year-end bonus. It was a ton of money, but Hayes, partly because of his UBS experience, fretted. Citigroup had become the poster boy for an out-of-control banking industry. Through a flurry of aggressive acquisitions, its voracious architect, Sandy Weil, had built the company from a small commercial lender in Baltimore into one of the world's biggest financial supermarkets, offering everything from checking accounts to derivatives, with the primary goal of pushing the bank's share price ever higher. Weil was famous for interrupting meetings to check Citigroup stock. Even as the financial crisis got underway, Citigroup had kept gorging on risky investments until, on the cusp of collapse, it had to be rescued twice by the U.S. government, which pumped $45 billion into the bank. An outside monitor had been appointed to reform Citigroup's pay practices. Unsurprisingly, The government wasn't wild about the idea of its dependent continuing to lavish employees with huge paychecks. But the bank assured Hayes that the promised paycheck wouldn't present a problem. The government restrictions only applied to the bank's top executives, 
not rank-and-file employees. The loophole was opened in response to pressure from Citigroup Brass, who warned their government overseers that clamping down on big pay packages lower down the food chain would put the bank in an untenable competitive position. That wouldn't be in anyone's interest, right? When UBS learned that Hayes was again talking with a rival, the bank scrambled to retain him. By then, Hayes was up nearly $150 million, and the year was only half over. Pieri wrote a detailed five-point email to his higher-ups in Zurich and London, listing all of Hayes' attributes. One of them was his strong connections with LIBOR setters, which Pieri described as invaluable. Plus, he was an excellent risk manager. It's not just the money he can make, it's the money he will save UBS and has done in times of crisis, Pieri gushed. During Lehman, we excelled, whilst other banks lost. Ken Geeter got back on the phone to plead with Hayes. Another top executive, a silver-haired Brit named Alex Wilmot Sitwell, called Hayes from London to sing the trader's praises. Hayes's squawk box was bleating with trading opportunities, and he told Wilmot Sitwell that he had to run. You go make your money. That's far more important, Wilmot Sitwell said. Ty pushed her fiancé to accept Citigroup's offer. Hayes, however, still felt the tug of loyalty to UBS, not to mention the fear of leaving the comfort of a familiar institution. He turned to Reed for counsel. His main advice, if he was seriously considering staying at UBS, make sure he got any commitment for more money etched in stone. It needs to be in writing and checked by a decent lawyer, Reed said. Hayes' problem was that, in some situations, he just wasn't good at saying no, an odd characteristic for someone with a well-deserved reputation for being blunt to the point of rudeness. If I say no to the CEO of the investment bank, Ken Geeter, that I don't trust his word, then I am looking like a disloyal employee, Hayes reasoned. You have two years of broken promises, Reed said. You are not going to risk getting mugged again. The buck stops somewhere at UBS, and that person needs to put numbers down in writing. I wish you could be my agent and just do the negotiating for me, Hayes mused. Reed joked that he'd be happy to do it, for a fee. While Hayes was a rainmaker, he had made enemies with Darren and others at the bank who resented his pit bull style, and, Hayes suspected, envied his success. Some executives thought it would be best for UBS if Hayes just left. When Darren's boss, Yvonne Ducro, saw the email with Pieri's glowing endorsement, he forwarded it to Darren and Holger Seeger. Could you please give me some balancing points against this bullshit? Ducro asked. Darren was happy to help. He responded that colleagues perceived Hayes as an immature, explosive person regularly losing his temper. He said other banks and brokers were aware of, and often joked about, Hayes' behavior. What's more, his efforts to get his pals in London to goose LIBOR were well known. I find it embarrassing when he calls up his mates to ask for favors on high-low fixings, wrote Darren, who of course had been using his power as UBS's yen LIBOR submitter to benefit his own trading positions. It makes UBS appear to manipulate others to suit our position. What's the legal risk of UBS asking others to move their fixing? Seeger was the manager who, years earlier, had pushed Andrew Smith and his rate-submitting crew in Zurich to collaborate more with the bank's swaps traders. If you want to know the reputation he has in London, let me know, Seeger wrote Ducro. But trust me, you won't like the sound of it. The anti-Hayes forces, though, were severely outgunned. With Ken Geeter and Wilmot Sitwell on board, UBS agreed to fork over a $500,000 retention payment to Hayes. Ken Geeter promised him he was looking at a year-end bonus in excess of $3 million. We agreed he would turn off City, Ken Geeter triumphantly reported to Pieri and others. I told him that he should get on with making money so I can pay him more.
And, enticing Hayes even further, Darren received a promotion that felt more like a sidelining. He was sent back to Zurich and stripped of his responsibilities as a LIBOR and TIBOR submitter. Those duties would now fall to Hayes' team. Darren, about to lose his last scrap of leverage over Hayes, figured he might as well make the most of his final days. He knew that Hayes needed Tybor higher, so he decided to lower UBS's submission. The next day, Darren's last in the Tokyo office. Pieri walked over to his desk and asked him to stop playing games. Tybor needed to go up, or at least not go down again. Darren smirked. It was clear to Pieri that Darren had been acting spitefully and that he was planning to do it again. Indeed, Darren lowered UBS's Tybor submission. Hayes and Reed were chatting when they noticed. Roger's parting gift, Hayes grumbled. He tried to screw my position. Next week, we have control. That summer in London, UBS's Kutsoyanis, a.k.a. Pete the Greek, was finally getting nervous about all the LIBOR machinations. One day in late June, he messaged a colleague, Just be careful, dude. It wasn't clear exactly what Pete was referring to, and perhaps that was deliberate. But it became obvious when his colleague responded, I agree we shouldn't have been talking about putting fixings for our positions on public chat. Just wanted to get some transparency, though. Their consternation was a sign that word of the CFTC investigation was slowly trickling down through the ranks at UBS and other banks. Like a radar detector on a seemingly deserted stretch of highway, banks' compliance departments were starting to sound the alarm about cops lurking up ahead. Nobody told Hayes. He had a huge set of trades dependent on LIBOR rising in mid-July and then falling afterward, and he acted accordingly. The day after Pete the Greek's warning, Guillaume Adolphe sent Hayes a message asking for his cell phone number. Hayes provided it, and the Deutsche Bank trader promptly called. Adolf noted their mutual desire to keep six-month LIBOR as high as possible. He suggested they act together to lift their submissions over the next two weeks, and then lower them later, to suit both of their interests. Hayes, pacing in a small conference room just off UBS's trading floor, agreed. Then his phone died. When he returned to his desk, he realized he wasn't entirely sure what he had just agreed to, thanks to the scratchy cell phone connection and Adolf's heavy accent. He figured he'd just double-check with Adolf that he had understood correctly. So he typed the plan into an instant message. Basically, I will help you in two weeks' time, he wrote to Adolf. But for the next two weeks, I really, really need you to put six months higher. After July 14th, I need six months to crash off, like you. Perfect, Adolf confirmed. That is no problem for me. Still, Hayes wanted to triple-check that nothing had been lost in translation. He had a ton riding on LIBOR going higher. But please move six months up on Monday, he emphasized. Understood. When Hayes kept repeating himself, Adolf drew a line. Okay, enough. Hayes still didn't stop. Six minutes later, he was still hammering in the same message. Enough, enough, Adolf demanded. A few hours later, Hayes figured it would be prudent to provide Adolf a final reminder. Please make sure you put the six-month up for me, he said. Oof, Adolf responded, as if he'd been punched in the gut. Enough, enough. I'll shut up now, Hayes said. Hayes' agreement with Adolf marked the start of what would be his most frenzied effort to get LIBOR to swing in favorable directions. Over the next few weeks, he bounced from broker to broker, and via them from bank to bank, HSBC, Societe Generale, Deutsche Bank, until he ultimately got most of what he wanted. LIBOR climbed higher, then declined, partly due to luck and partly due to banks honoring his requests. Reed showed up in Tokyo for one of his periodic visits to see his lone client. Night after night, he and Hayes went out, accompanied by a local broker named Anthony Hayes. He was nicknamed Abbo 
derogatory slang for Aboriginal. The moniker was the result of an incident when the young Australian broker, working at the time in ICAP's Sydney offices, didn't show up for work. It turned out he had decided, without bothering to inform his colleagues, to try his hand at cattle ranching. Not long after his walkabout, Abbo returned to work at ICAP as if nothing had happened. Abbo was hulking, and while his head was bald, his body was covered with a thick layer of dark hair. No secret to anyone in Tokyo given his tendency to strip naked when drunk. The trio feasted on ribs at Tony Roma's, watched cricket, and hung out at Hayes' local pub. Hayes was comfortable at the Windsor, but it wasn't very exciting for his friends, so one night the three went out looking for something more rambunctious. After several hours of preliminary boozing, around midnight they ended up at Magumbo's, the same bar where Ty and her sister had bumped into Darren a few months earlier. They were drunk, one of them in particular. Abbo was off his nut, Reed recounted. The bar was crowded, and when Abbo vomited, he soaked numerous customers. When Hayes shared his plans to work with Deutsche Bank and HSBC to massage LIBOR, Reed warned that the three banks shouldn't move their data all at once. It will look very fishy, he said. I'd be very careful how you play it or risk people questioning you. Don't want you getting into shit. Hayes was nonchalant. Don't worry, we'll stagger the drops. Us, then Deutsche, then HSBC, then us, then Deutsche, then HSBC, he explained. Reed gave a thumbs up. Great, the plan is hatched and sounds sensible. Reed met Alikulo for the first time on the Tokyo trip. The pair had chatted occasionally over the years, but never face to face. Now Reed happily dispensed detailed advice to the young trader. You should do just fine, Reed said, impressed with his aptitude. Yes, unless Tomster makes veins pop up in my head, Alikulov said, before dubbing him Tomster the Ripper. Alikulov had come to wonder if the volatile Hayes perhaps suffered from some sort of dual personality disorder. Has he left you alone today? Reed asked. Mate. I take it no then, smiley face. Just that morning, Alikulov explained, he had run a trading idea past Hayes, who told me it was a stupid idea and I should go and die. Glad it's not just us he's like that with, Reed said. Tell him to fuck off now and then. Usually does the trick. One warm day in early August, Reed and Alikulov were bantering back and forth. Markets were drowsy. Their conversation meandered, turning philosophical. Have you seen the movie Troy? Alikulov asked. Reed said he had watched the Brad Pitt epic a couple of times. In one scene, Alikulov said, Young Paris tells his brother that gods must have blessed them with good winds. Remember what Hector replies? Reed couldn't recall the specific scene. Alikulov paraphrased the line. Gods of the sea can bless you in the morning and curse you in the afternoon. Too true, mate, Reed agreed. Hayes was on a globe-hopping work trip, hitting Hong Kong and Singapore before heading to London. Such was his renown in the market that the visit to London triggered gossip among traders that he had returned for good. His next stop was Zurich, to be followed by a vacation in the Avignon region of France with his family, then back to London for a few days before finally returning to Tokyo. His three-week visit to Zurich was mainly to talk to UBS's computer programmers about improving the bank's trading models. The Excel spreadsheets he had built in Tokyo had worked as advertised, and now UBS wanted to spread them throughout the organization. But Hayes had another reason for wanting to go to Zurich. He had continued to talk with Checkeray and the Citigroup guys. Still on the fence, he hoped that visiting the UBS mothership might help him make up his mind. Before he arrived, Hayes was included on an email chain that should have worried him. UBS executives wanted to hold a meeting about their LIBOR and TIBOR settings in Tokyo. There is increased scrutiny of how fixings are being done, a bank executive, Yugo Matsumoto, wrote to Hayes, Pieri, and others.
As a result, we need to be sure internally that our fixing process is robust and explainable, and that we are above reproach. Hayes wrote back saying he was confused about the purpose of the meeting. Matsumoto told him not to worry. Just explain how the process works and everything would be fine. Hayes accepted that and moved on. Later, ensconced at UBS's offices in the pasture land outside Zurich, Hayes shot off a casual email to Pieri about his efforts to get LIBOR moved. The plan was nothing unusual, but in Tokyo, Hayes and Pieri communicated in person, not over email. Hayes was outside getting some fresh air when his cell phone rang. Pieri asked if Hayes was in the office. Hayes said no. Don't ever send me an email like that again, Pieri snarled. I could lose my job over that. Stunned, Hayes promised not to put it in writing again. Footnote. When Hayes returned to Tokyo a few weeks later, Pieri apologized for the outburst. He said he had overreacted to the mounting concern inside UBS about the U.S. investigations into the dollar version of LIBOR. The message I got was not to stop doing it. It was to stop emailing about it, Hayes would say. End footnote. Hayes had never before been to UBS's Zurich offices, and he was shocked by the different culture there. It wasn't just the pastoral setting. Hayes ate in a luxurious corporate dining room where waiters served three-course lunches paired with wine. It was a throwback to a bygone era, one in which well-appointed, sit-down meals, often enjoyed in private clubs, and always featuring generous servings of wine and brandy, were deeply embedded in the fabric of banking. The custom struck Hayes, accustomed to wolfing down lunch at his desk, if he ate at all, as over the top, especially for a bank struggling to stay afloat in the aftermath of a financial crisis. The opulence was especially aggravating because UBS, at the time, was trying to phase out his housing allowance in Tokyo. More personally, Some of the Zurich traders treated him like an outcast, presumably a product of his frosty relationship with Ducro and Darren's team. Back in Tokyo in late August, he told Ty he'd felt like a leper, not a star, and for days he ranted about how UBS wasn't looking out for him, even though he was devoting his life to the firm. As if sensing the shifting dynamics, Citigroup delivered a sweetened offer. To Ty, The decision seemed easy. Go to Citigroup. But Hayes agonized. He kept waking his fiancée in the middle of the night to tell her about nightmares he was having about betraying Pieri. At lunchtime one day, he showed up unannounced at Ty's law firm. As they walked in circles around the building's small internal courtyard, Hayes proclaimed, I don't think I can do it. That doesn't make any sense, Ty said, exasperated. You're supposed to be the logical one. Finally, she gave him an order. Either accept Citigroup's offer or stop whining about how UBS was mistreating him. That did it. Hayes handed in his resignation to UBS on September 3rd. Pieri refused to accept it and sent him home for the next two days. Then he trudged over to Alikolov, put his hands on the youngster's shoulders, and instructed him to stop building up positions in any trades that involved Hayes. Alikulov quickly figured out what had happened. Brokers were told Hayes was out sick. The Swiss bank made a last-ditch effort to keep him. UBS executives noted that Hayes had raked in another $20 million since the $500,000 retention payment in June, bringing his total earnings for the bank to about $280 million over a three-year period but it was too late. Hayes had already signed a contract with Citigroup, giving him an annual salary of 23.9 million yen, about $240,000, and an upfront cash signing bonus of 292 million yen, $2.9 million, plus a guaranteed 188 million yen, $1.9 million, to compensate for future payments he was forfeiting by leaving UBS. Hayes left with plenty of trepidation. Some of his interactions with brokers made him nervous, especially those involving switch trades. And then there was the collusive arrangement with Adolf. Now his phone, email, and instant message records 
were sitting at a bank that presumably was furious with him for defecting. Hayes wondered whether that could come back to bite him. As Hayes left, UBS shifted responsibility for handling LIBOR submissions away from traders and clarified that such submissions should no longer be based on factors like trading positions or brokers. In fact, some at UBS doubted whether it made sense for the bank to even remain involved with LIBOR. Recent public scrutiny leads to a higher regulatory risk and reputation risk, and we believe it would be worth, for senior management, to consider the ongoing benefit of being a LIBOR contributor bank, read an internal memo written two weeks before Hayes left. The qualms would prove prescient, but they went unheeded. Word of Hayes' defection quickly spread. This will be a hit to morale, and we run a risk that other members of the team may be vulnerable, a morose Pieri warned colleagues. Another UBS executive informed colleagues that they would need to rein in their expectations for the performance of Hayes' former rates trading team. Previously, we would be trying to make $125 million plus with Tom in the seat, the executive wrote. The new forecast was for roughly $60 million. To comply with the terms of his contract at UBS, Hayes had to take a few months off before he was allowed to start at Citigroup. Such mandatory breaks were known in the industry as gardening leave because they gave transitioning employees time to putter around in their gardens. Hayes wasn't much of a gardener, but he had plenty of other business to attend to.